2: This is Blue Moon. It's the original fan-made Manchester City podcast. Coming up, we've got news and views from City's Week. It's your club and this is your show.
3: Now remember how I started last week's Blue Moon podcast by complaining about shock transfer that rocked the boats after a good result well it turned out that that was just the tip of the iceberg as news comes this week that Manchester City have been charged by the Premier League with breaking financial rules over a 9 year period and that comes off the back of a defeat at Spurs as well I dread to think how next week's show will start but we'll cross that bridge when we come to it so let's get our ducks in order and get to what's happened in the last 7 days on today's show we'll hear from sports lawyer Tom Murray to get his insights on what exactly City were accused of and what happens next we'll also refer reflect on that 1-0 defeat at the Tottenham Hotspur stadium and where that leaves the team in their bid to chase down Arsenal. We'll hear from Frankie Maguire from the podcast All Villa No Filler ahead of the tie at the weekend. Plus we'll preview the first league meeting with the Premier League leaders as City go to the Emirates on Wednesday. On top of all of that, we're also remembering the 2008 Manchester Derby double. Friday marks 15 years since sven and Eriksson took his side to Old Trafford and won for the first time in more than 30 years. Don't expect today's episode to remain around the hour mark by the time we've finished with all of that, so we better get on with it. I'm David Mooney. I am joined by City fan Adam Keyworth.
4: Hello. This is a good one um, to be dragged into. With yeah, welcome. All that's I mean, gone on the last week. <laughs>
3: in fairness, we organised it before the tra- before the charges came, so you have got no excuse.
4: <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, I give you that. I give you that.
3: Yeah, and uh, as a very last minute substitution, we've got the Athletics. Mark Critchley. Hi, Mark.
5: Hi, does that mean I do have an excuse then?
3: Uh, yeah, you do have excuses, so uh, <laughs> yeah. you, uh, you you should you, you should be on the on the top of your form, having covered this incessantly for the last three days. We'll, we'll so.
5: see about that. All I'll say is that I'm I feel very qualified to be on the I'm not a lawyer but episode. So.
3: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> right. so we're going to start with that. The biggest story of the week: uh, City have been charged with more than a hundred breaches of the Premier League regulations following a four-year investigation. The club's been referred to an independent commission with regard to allegations of breaking financial rules between 2009 and. 2018. They're also accused of failing to comply with the investigation. So to find out what all that means, I've been speaking to Tom Murray, who is a sports lawyer with de rea He advises clubs on compliance with financial sustainability, and he wrote the chapter on FFP in the book Football and the Law. He starts by outlining the allegations against the club.
6: So the City are facing over 100 alleged breaches of both the Premier League rules and the UEFA rules, um, some of which relate to financial fair play. And these date back to 2009, with some of them as recent as, as 2018. Now, the allegations include that the club, in in substance, essentially failed to provide accurate financial information, which allows the Premier League to give a, a you know a, to fairly assess the club's financial position. And um, some of this relates to stuff like sponsorship income, whereas there are other kind of alleged breaches relating to how much money was paid to a manager, and um, which relates to Roberto Mancini's tenure, and also how much was paid to players. Um, and interestingly, there's a there's a separate charge relating to City's failure to cooperate with the Premier League's investigation. So the Premier League have been investigating this since December 2018, um, and this was a criticism that was also made by UEFA. And um, fans may remember back to the sort of July 2020, where they had the Court of Arbitration for Sports, who found that City had showed a blatant disregard of of, of this principle of cooperation. Um, I think in in that case that tactic paid off because City only received a 10 million euro fine. But it kind of remains to be seen whether whether this will um, be successful before the Premier League's independent commission.
3: Yeah, um, I mean, this this sounds pretty serious in terms of um, kind of potential wrongdoings if found guilty. So, uh, what are the potential sanctions here? What what could happen if if City are found guilty?
6: So there's a there's a real kind of menu of sanctions under the Premier League rules. So the smaller sanctions are stuff like a fine and a transfer embargo. And then we can go up to a points deduction you know the removal of titles and technically even expulsion from the league although i don't think that's particularly likely um but you know these proceedings are likely to take quite a long period of time to play out and there's various appeals processes that can be followed so my view is they're unlikely to affect this this the current title race
3: yeah i mean could they could they affect previous title races in in, in terms of completed seasons
6: of course, yeah. So, um, so the the Premier League rules are pretty broad on this topic, um, and they do it. They do enable the Commission to impose any sanction as it sees fit, um, and they list out a, a set of sanctions which could be imposed. And at the bottom, there's a there's a kind of a all provision that says, or any other or any other um sanction that the Commission wishes to impose. So, it, yeah, it 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 could be very very serious. This, and I think if you look at the number of allegations that have been made. You know, this is the first time that a Premier League club, um, it will be the first time that a Premier League club has ever been found to have breached the, the FFP rules. If 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 the charges are upheld, and I think with a hundred different allegations made, I think the club will be taking this very very seriously
3: yeah I mean I, there'll be city fans listening to this that uh, uh will be worried that previous titles could basically be be taken from them in like if it if it's a case of a player points deduction for say the 11 twelve season then um that would that would impact city's title for that year I, is there is there a case that that titles and trophies could be could be not necessarily stripped from them but but kind of taken away
6: I mean in, th- in theory yes that's 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 a definite possibility. Um, it's, a, it's it would obviously be a very very harsh sanction to impose. So you, you'd expect to see that sanction if there was a, a very very serious breach in the kind of history of financial fair play at UEFA level and at, at EFL level. So you know for clubs competing in the championship, um, that type of sanction would be unlikely. Um, but it, it's 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 on the menu of sanctions that could be imposed.
3: Yeah, um, I mean, let's look at this kind of a little bit further down the line as well. So uh, again, if City are found guilty of this, um, could other clubs sue on this on on this basis? Because uh, again, it's kind of like loss of earnings. T- teams that might have won the title in other years, where City have, have, have breached sanctions, if they're guilty, then uh, they've they've potentially missed out on on prize money there.
6: Well, yeah, they could. So other Premier League clubs could could bring what's called a, an arbitration against city um what they'd have to show there is that they've suffered loss as a result of city's alleged breaches of the Premier League rules and the reason clubs are able to do this is because the Premier League rules are essentially a, a contract between both the club relevant club and the league but also between the relevant clubs so there is there is the ability for clubs to bring a claim and um, you would have seen or you have seen reports in relation to everton that clubs were considering taking positive arbitral action against the club there and it's a similar type of model that would be followed here what the rules do not allow is that let's say let's say this commission makes a determination and imposes a sanction um the two the two people that are able to appeal that decision are the premier league and the club but that there's not a, a right for another club to intervene in that appeal
3: i see yeah so i mean let's let's look at this the other way as well and and, uh, and say if city are found not guilty um what happens then is that is that basically the case closed or is there a, or could the premier league appeal that decision
6: well no it's, it's not necessarily closed at all so the premier league um just like city would they both have a right to appeal the decision of an independent commission Um, so if, if that happens a, a new panel would be formed what's called an appeal board um, and that would be a three-person panel and again and there'll be there'll be a new decision that's made Um, in theory that the decisions of an appeal board can also be appealed. Um, but there's very limited circumstances in which you can appeal a decision of the appeal board. So, for example, there has to be something like fraud or malice or bad faith or, you know, a, a perverse interpretation of the law. So in practice, this is a really, really high bar and it makes it very unlikely. Um, and if an appeal against the appeal board was bought, um, it would be by means of, of a private arbitration. So it's quite a lengthy and complex process and um, and if you look historically how city have have approached these types of um, matters one would expect that they would they would be looking to challenge it tooth and nail
3: yeah um now obviously there's there's been reports as well recently that there's no options for city to appeal to say the court of arbitration for sports um and that it would be another independent panel instead would it would it basically be that a new panel would look at the same evidence again or would it be a, a new panel would look at kind of specific things or or kind of little parts of the of the original judgment
6: Yeah, so this isn't something that would be referred to the Court of Arbitration for Sport. And there's some there's some conflicting news stories out there at the moment which suggest that actually this could be appealed to the cast. Um, But the Premier League rules do not allow um, an appeal to the CAS. What they do allow, as we've just mentioned, is the commission's decision can be appealed to the appeal board in very limited circumstances. The appeal board's decision can be appealed um, with private arbitration and in even more limited circumstances there's the potential and it's you know a very technical legal case um to appeal under what's called the arbitration act um but yeah these are this, this so as you can see it can be a very long drawn out process um but it gets more and more challenging to appeal the decision of the appeal body each time
3: yeah. Now, just on the length of this, as well, you said earlier that um, you, you don't, you wouldn't expect it to affect this season's title race. So, I mean, uh, how how likely are we, uh, or how soon do you think we might get a judgment in this? Are we looking at weeks, months, years? What do you think?
6: Yeah, I think, I think, I think months, and you know, potentially years, depending on if there's an appeal. I think the minimum amount of time we can expect here before there's a decision of the, of the commission is is you know four to six months, um, and you know, obviously, those decisions could be appealed again with the potential of a further appeal. So, you know, as you can see, this this can be drawn out. Um, and if you think about it, you know, the Premier League have been investigating this since 2018. You know, some of the breaches relate to conduct done in 2009 are alleged to be done in 2009. So, you know, we're already sort of 14 years from that period, um, meaning lots of people will, will want to draw this to a close. But actually, there's a, there's a fairly long legal process that needs to be fought out.
3: Yeah. Um, just finally, Tom. Uh, obviously, we, we we've been here before with City and and the case with uh, with UEFA that was uh, that was taken to the Court of Arbitration for Sports. Um, uh, it turned out that a lot of uh, the uh, the things that UEFA were trying to to act on were time barred in that case. Uh, that's not a possibility here. Um, what what does that mean for, for for City going forward?
6: Yes, it's it's it's, it's interesting. So fans may remember back to the to the to the Court of Arbitration for Sport case that yeah, a lot of the a lot of the matters were time barred. So under the UEFA rules, and this is this is where it can get a bit complicated because when people talk about financial fair play, they talk about it as if it's one set of rules. But actually, there's the UEFA rules, there's the Premier League rules, there's the EFL rules. And the, the, the case before the Court of Arbitration for Sports related to the UEFA rules. Um, and the UEFA rules used to have a provision that essentially said if, if, if something happened over five years ago, um, that the prosecution cannot be bought. And a lot of the conduct in that case related to more than five years ago, which essentially meant that that, that the allegations could not be upheld. Um, this the decision of the court of arbitration for sport was quite interesting because it led to UEFA actually changing its rules um, to enable them to look back on on on, a, on, a, on historic periods. But the Premier League rules don't contain any type of restriction, and as you can see in this case, this is why they're looking back to conduct from two thousand nine, um, which is over fourteen years ago. So essentially the Premier League are able to look back in history as long as they possibly want which is a which is a uh, you know quite an interesting position to take and and some might say is is unfair because you, when the punishment is ultimately handed down if the if the charges are upheld you know the conduct could be from 16 years previously and um, which many will say doesn't reflect the time when the punishment is imposed
3: uh, just on that as well if um, if City are found guilty of, of breaches that were part of UEFA's case but were time barred in the Premier League kind of situation, could UEFA reopen a case there? Is that is that a possibility?
6: So, look, UEFA would need to bring, um, to bring action under their own specific rules. And again, whilst they don't have this, they no longer have this same wording in relation to time restrictions, the rules do not allow them to look back as far as the Premier League do. So um, I think it's unlikely that UEFA would take out... Um, would look to, look to bring another claim in relation to these exact same facts um, and I think typically in sport when, when one body is investigating conduct they, they like to leave that body to, to carry out their own investigation as opposed to kind of having two bodies looking into the same thing at the same time so I suspect that the Premier League um, will, will just like they waited for UEFA to complete um, complete their process, their, their process will now be respected by UEFA.
2: Get involved with the debate on Twitter at Blue Moon Podcast.
3: That was Tom Murray uh, speaking to me there. Now, uh, in response to the uh, charges, uh, City put out a statement on Monday. It says, uh, Manchester City FC is surprised by the issuing of these alleged breaches of the Premier League rules, particularly given the extensive engagement and vast amounts of detailed materials that the EPL has been provided with. The club welcomes the review of this matter by an independent commission to impartially consider the comprehensive body of irrefutable evidence that exists in support of its position. As such, we look forward to this matter being put to rest once and for all. Um, Adam I'll, I'll start with you because uh, as the fan on this week's uh, this this week's show um what what was your reaction to this news how are you feeling about it all
4: it's it just feels a bit tiring doesn't it um we knew from the other year with UEFA and Cass and everything else that went on it felt like that was the turning point maybe um but no this has been boiling away in the background hasn't it for a while uh, I think I think the, the big concern is this is going to drag on. And if this was just charges and there was some sort of punishment now, you can kind of face it and get on with it. But this is going to sit over us now for the next two years and whatever happens this season and maybe next, we don't know if that is even going to count. So it almost feels like what are we doing in the interim? Yeah. Um, I I also think it's a very strange play from both the Premier League and now City's response. Um, Neither look like they're going to back down. It's going to put the Premier League in a very, very awkward position because they have to win this judgment. If they don't win this judgment, they're going to look extremely weak and then the Super League question is going to come back up and all the rest of it. And I do wonder if this is going to be the catalyst for the Super League. Um, I, don't, I just don't know. I almost don't like City's confidence about it. There's something about it that I find quite jarring. Uh, they obviously think that they've got a case, but... I listened to Stefan's ridiculously good Spaces the other night, if anyone didn't listen to it. That was a really good little back and forth with him and Lloyd. And what I took from that is this might run a lot deeper than what we've just seen from the charges. Um, All to do with the government and the Premier League at large and all this stuff about the new white paper and everything... It just seems, it's just murky, isn't it? And it puts you as a fan in a very strange position because I don't need to defend the club's owners. Yeah, you never, know, you didn't the get richest. into watching
3: City to sit no, at home with a spreadsheet. Some yeah. of the,
4: the richest and most intelligent people in the world, I don't need to defend them. They, they can do that themselves. If they've got nothing to be hiding or if they know they're in the right, then they'll do that themselves. It's not for me to defend. I also don't need to defend the club. I don't go to the game on a Saturday and think, oh God, I've got to defend the club against a hundred breaches of financial irregularities. I just want to sit there and watch them play football. So it's a bit... bit
3: You'll you'll literally never Um, sing that. Yeah,
4: you're right. (laughs) Yeah, you'll never sing that. Yeah. Um, And it's going to be strange because obviously it's incessant from other clubs and in some ways tragic and in some ways uh, quite embarrassing from people now trying to get medals from years where they finished 20 points behind or whatever. But... That bit's funny. The rest of it doesn't sit very nicely, does it? And yeah, it's, yeah, great. It'd be funny if we got relegated to the National League. But at the same time, it would also diminish a lot of what we've done. And that would be harder to take. It's yeah. not going to take away any moments. Like I'm not going to sit there and go, Christ, Gundogan's winner last season or the Aguero goal or the goal that got us 100 points. I'm not going to think, God, what was the point of me going? You can't take those bits away, but the things that come with it is is a bit shady for me. Yeah,
3: the um, I, I like the idea that Martin Tyler, uh, his Aguero, would have to just kind of like be played in reverse, uh, just kind of get, <laughs> you know to undo it, sort of thing. Um, You'll
4: have to re-record it over the the sky coverage for yeah. the rest of
3: the time. <laughs> yeah. Um, Mark, what What about the reaction from other clubs? Because um, the, the sense I'm getting, and I, I get that I'm very much in a city bubble, uh, but the sense I'm getting is it feels like there's a lot of people obeying for blood.
5: Well, um, I think you would, That everybody expected that, I think. Um, these financial cases with City that have been rumbling on for years, they've caused so much heat and and not much light really on social media um, among fans but really I mean the reaction from other clubs we're talking about what people who are in positions of of seniority and authority at those clubs think and look it doesn't take a genius to work out how John Henry feels about this I could probably guess that myself Um, I'm sure other members of the top six will be looking at it but um, and, and feel in a similar way. Um, there's there's clubs in the Premier League that feel that they can't compete with City, and so they're going to welcome anything that perhaps allows them to do that. I'm sure, but really, I don't think it, the reaction of other clubs is is, is what's important here. Um, it's and again, like I, I've seen people asking questions about what happens if you know should the Premier League go for for other clubs? Should they be opening up accounts? of uh, Chelsea of uh, you know united of whoever but it comes back to the fact that these allegations stem from a very specific um very very specific claims that came out in dish beagle in tw- in 2018 that's been the hook if you like as um for for this investigation to take place
3: um, I I did kind of wonder about the idea of like you know people in glass houses don't throw stones and careful of what other yeah. skeletons are in other closets that sort of thing
5: yeah, well, look, like I'm saying, I think <laughs> maybe there are, but the Premier League can't simply go to different clubs and say, excuse me, we don't think you've been managing your accounts properly. Can we take a look? There's got to be a reason for it. And um, the reason they've done it with City is those allegations that came out um, several years ago now. And this investigation dates back until then. Um, I agree with Adam. Like I listened to Stefan's uh, Twitter Spaces the other night and I thought it was absolutely excellent in the way that it broke everything down. Um, so if anybody wants to really dig into the weeds of this then then there's that resource there all i would say is that look it'll come down ultimately to what this panel of this independent panel that is appointed by the through the premier league this process is going to decide and the premier league is going to have to abide by whatever recommendation they make i believe so um it's going to be a very long process um i think it suits both sides for it to be done as privately as possible, which perhaps means that yes, we all think that it's this is going to run and run and run. Um, it might recede from the headlines for a little bit. I think um, it will go away. It will be in the background still. I do think Adam's point as well about how what that means for the rest of the league is really interesting. Actually, you know, this is um, something which calls into question the integrity of the league. Um, but also, you know, not just for fans of other clubs who we're talking about here, but also for City fans. You know, if City fans are watching, uh, I know it seems unlikely at this point, but imagine there's a huge comeback this, and, and they overhaul the points deficit behind Arsenal and it's one of the more memorable title chases in recent years. Can can City fans really celebrate that as well? Because we don't know what's going to count. Um, it's a huge problem for the Premier League that, um, and especially just given that, the brand, um, the fact that it is probably this country's biggest cultural export, um, there's so many different factors playing into it there as well with, obviously, the Abu Dhabi elements and the government elements involved in this. Uh, it's it's really is such a, a complex topic to try yeah. and dig into, but... Um, Welcome to the yeah, show. Yeah, thank you. Thank David,
2: you. David, it's. Um...
5: You've know, not had much sleep. Um, but yeah. <laughs> but
4: it, it gets even murkier, doesn't it? Uh, yeah. Mark mentioned that spaces the other night. And if you go and look at all the charges, it's basically one big charge. And then everything will filter back down through that. Um, but in short, from what I've read and what I've listened, um, this is the I'm not a lawyer, but bit. <clears throat> It does seem that the Premier League's job and this panel's job is to prove that the people who run Abu Dhabi have lied for nine years, have falsified accounts knowingly for nine whole years. They've got to basically prove that those people have lied. These aren't just any random people as well. That's the other thing that is is really interesting about this. These are some of the wealthiest people in the world, some people who the UK government have huge links to. Like Mark said, the Premier League being one of its biggest exports, City being one of the Premier League's biggest exports now. This is massive for the for the Premier League itself, I think. If they get this wrong, what does that do to their reputation? Yeah, If they absolutely. If they, it's not just what it does to their reputation, what does it then do to the City owners? And what are they going to think of the Premier League trying to do that? Are they going to say, well, sack the Premier League off then? Remember this Super League, let's go. They've thrown everything at this, the Premier League, and they have to win for for their own in- integrity. I don't even think I saw a lot of opposition fans, and these were the ones who were being quite alright about it. They were basically saying like a 10-point points deduction. If they prove that City did lie, it has to be as severe as possible. If you just give a a million pound fine and 10 points deduction. I don't think that's then going to satisfy everything that's gone on now. Um, so it's really, really tricky. And I do wonder if the Premier League did it and then thought, oh God, what have we done? Yeah, or What, yeah. what I have think we that... opened up here? Because it, it's not... City will drag them through the mud and you don't want your biggest brand. And Abu Dhabi have just made this deal with the UK government and I wonder if the government then get involved and there's the whole thing about the new sports bill and God, it's going to be very tough. I think, and I'm glad, like Mark said, that it is going to be in private because it might go away for a few months, which isn't a bad thing.
5: Yeah, yeah. I did. just just on the punishments element, I was talking when the news came out the other day to um, sports lawyers and people who work in sports regulation, just trying to get a sense of what was likely. And I have to say, when I was speaking to them, you know, the more extreme the nuclear options were, were played down. Really, um, there was a sense that. Give it, uh, the scale of the scale of what is alleged is huge. Don't get me wrong. And if that is proven, then I, I I do think there's going to be a demand really for the the scale of punishment that we're talking about here. That is whatever expulsion, you know, huge points deductions, etc. But this is still subject to an appeals process through the Premier League's disciplinary uh, system. And any punishment that is going to be handed out is going to be need to be seen as proportionate and reasonable. Now, it might be that if they manage to prove the more substantial claims in this, which are those claims in Section 1, which are eff- effectively falsifying accounts, and like we say, being dishonest and misleading, then that will demand a huge punishment. But the people I were talking to were more... they They thought that something like a points deduction would be ultimately more palatable to the Premier League or... You know that that scale of punishment, where they don't lose a brand that is of of city's caliber as well, because they'd ultimately be kicking them out of the league and losing a club of Manchester City size and reach and scope, um, which isn't ideal either for them. Uh, I don't, look that was that was the opinion of a few people that I spoke to. I don't know whether that'd be reflected once all the evidence comes out, because like we say, the scale of that that first section of um, of charges is really quite quite immense and yeah. possibly has. Bearings beyond even this process, um as as I think, like they they were referencing on Stefan's uh, spaces the other night. But um there is, I still think you, we don't have to immediately consider the doomsday scenario, I would say. there is a glimmer of hope perhaps that perhaps it's just a point's deduction, and perhaps it's it's a it's a pretty severe slap on the wrists. but um yeah, the scale the scale of what's alleged is huge, no doubt.
2: You can listen to the show ad-free by joining our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash blue moon podcast.
3: Let's bring in this from uh, Country Dairy on Twitter who says, uh, Am I wrong to find it weird that City, the only top six club in favour of an independent regulator for the Premier League, It's the main thing we're guilty of being better than United, Liverpool and Arsenal, who don't like it up having seen their backsides as we ended there? Now, this last word, he- hegemony, hegemony, I've never heard it said out loud. I don't know what the, I don't know how you say it. Hegemony?
5: <laughs> Hegem- I would say hegemony. Hegemony. hegemony,
3: yeah. Yeah. Well, well, whatever that word is, you all know what I mean. Um, Adam is like an independent regulator uh, for the Premier League. City, the only top six side uh, in favor of that. Like, is there anything to be read into that, or is it just a? Is this just one of those things that we could look at and go, well, maybe this yeah. is this is I just th- a little bit I of think red this is that just we, that we're seeing? Yeah,
4: I think this this is just seeing things and thinking, oh, I wonder if that's the thing. We've got to remember as well. This has been going on for four years, more than four years. So, I would. City have known this, this investigation has been going on in the background, so they may have wanted an independent regulator because of this investigation. Yeah, I don't yeah. know if that's... Read it, so if you could read into it the other way, that they're in favour of it because of the investigation, rather than it being, oh, City so are in favour of it, and now this is the investigation. And also, of course, other clubs don't like it. Like That's just normal. Um, I, And... I think other people have said it better than than I can. That none of this is agenda based. This is this is the biggest league in the world saying that one of its biggest clubs has been cheating for nine years. It's not. This isn't one of those little agenda pieces that you find in the back of a paper somewhere. This is as serious an allegation as anything gets in sport. It's one of the. It's probably one of the most serious allegations in any sport ever. So. It's not going to be, oh, United, Liverpool and Arsenal cried off. They're going to. If they think they've been cheated out of things, Mark said it before, if if other clubs as well think that they've been affected, then this is how deep this could go. If, if City get found guilty, all these other clubs are going to start lining up to sue City for loss of earnings, for loss of opportunity and everything. So, yeah, I'm, I can't have it that it's just the... The independent regulator or other clubs. I think we can read into it any which way we want any to make ourselves ways. feel better.
3: Yeah. Well, um, I mean, just on the the, the regulator mark, um, there was there was obviously questions over the timing of the the announcement because of the, the white paper in the week as well. That was that's that actually got pushed back. Um, what what do you make of the idea that the Premier League has pushed this out now in
5: order to prove it doesn't need an independent regulator? Um, well, I, I think it's a point, um, perhaps. But exactly as Adam's just said, this this is the process that's been going on for five, for four years now, five years um, since 2018, late 2018, basically. And um, it's not like the independent regulator was going to start work on Wednesday morning. You know, This was always going to be in the Premier League's wheelhouse. It was always going to be something that they had to deal with themselves. So, look, I think we're going to have to get used to the phrase a procedural point <laughs> in, <laughs> over the next few years it's it's a point perhaps that look could the timing have been better maybe could they certainly have given them more notice apparently they they found out at exactly the same time as basically we all did on monday morning you know yeah maybe they could have given them a bit more notice as well but does that really address the substance of what's alleged uh, is that really going to make a difference on on the case itself i don't think so um there's there's so much more to this uh, and yeah like just to come back on something that adam mentioned there as well again like all these other clubs that are looking at it and looking at titles or whatever again when i was speaking to people the other day that almost seemed quite difficult um that they'd be able to go back and maybe claim compensation or whatever because it's it's ultimately quite difficult to prove that if city weren't here you for example, Liverpool would have won this game instead, or United would have won this game. It's it's very difficult to try and get that through uh, a legal process. So, the the idea that perhaps titles are going to be assigned to other clubs is is remote, I think. But. Um, yeah, there's obviously going to be it, it, a lot of it probably anger goes. And,
3: yeah, it probably goes further than that as well, because you think of there must be teams in those seasons who, for instance, City took six points off and got, they got relegated, and one of their relegation rivals took points off City.
5: Precisely, yeah. There's all kinds of stuff that you could throw, and it becomes a minefield, essentially. I think what is, if anything like that was going to happen, what would be most likely is that the Premier League would come back and say, OK, those titles that you won, you've been stripped of those. There's no winner. Uh, and we move on and and to be honest I think there'd even be a bit of reluctance to apply any punishment retrospectively because what does it actually really achieve you know from the Premier League's perspective they want to um, make a punishment felt if they feel that one is necessary and so applying it to future seasons and and the club as it is now as it is constituted now would probably be their preference for it so I, I think that's um, you know, there were so many fanciful things that were flying around. There was even the one about replaying matches, which I absolutely loved. Like, how how would you even do that? Like, it's the Aguero thing again. <laughs> Maybe just play it in the metaverse or something. I don't know. But um, yeah, no, we we but, got we, we, we got two of the first team just playing FIFA against each other. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So I think some of those things are quite unrealistic, really. But um, but no, I, and again, like. I, I just think we're gonna. There's gonna be these points that are raised every so often, whether it's like the timing of the independent regulator, whether it's oh uh, these clubs want this, these clubs want that. Um, ultimately, it's going to come down to what the Premier League can prove, what City can prove in their defence, and that is a more of a limited scope than some of the more fanciful things that we're talking about
3: yeah adam just want to i want i want to um kind of not spend all show on this so uh let's finish with uh, with this that um the noise is that that city are confident behind the scenes and it's not just the sort of confidence you have when making a statement defending your innocence you know I, like when when city put that statement out they kind of have to say that they welcome the opportunity to clear the name sort of thing um, but from what we've been hearing from from uh, journalists and from people kind of working on these stories, is that there is actual genuine confidence from behind the scenes and from people at the club that that they they don't have a case to answer, that they are that they are going to win this case.
4: How does that make you feel? I suppose they have to. Uh, I didn't really like it, you know. Strangely, I, I felt something about it was a bit off. Um, yeah. But I suppose they have to say that they're confident; otherwise, they're not. They're definitely not innocent, are they? If they're if they're not saying that, I just wonder where the confidence is coming from. And you wonder, do they have something that's irrefutable to say? No, we we haven't done anything wrong. But I, I'm not sure. Right, like we said at the start of the show, these are some of the richest most intelligent, most well-connected people in the world, they can defend themselves. I don't really care for statements. I don't really care for anything like that. If they're innocent, they're innocent. The issue that they're going to have now is even if they clear the name, and they may well do, and the club are, uh, by the panel's adjudication, innocent, in the eyes of every other fan and other clubs, it's tarnished forever. That's the other thing that the Premier League have got to deal with.
3: Yeah, the sort if of no smoke league without lose, fire sort of thing.
4: Yeah, if the Premier League lose, they've still painted City as guilty for however long this trial goes on for. So how do they then, how, how do you go back from it? That's the other thing. How How does anyone, the league, the club, the fan base, the, the wider footballing fan bases, how do you then go back from this and say, well, actually they were innocent? It's going to be some statement Uh, If City do win and the Premier League have to come out and say, do you know what? We were wrong. We we got this wrong. We got 100 charges wrong. I don't know if anybody else can't see that, but I can't. I don't think there's any way that the Premier League come out and say, we spent four years and got 100 charges wrong. That's not going to happen, is it?
3: I love I love the um, idea that uh, like the, like the Premier League Twitter account just posts a thing that says uh, like, sorry. like pre- pre- Premier League statement. Sorry, yeah,
4: <laughs> yeah, sorry, sorry, lads, we got this one wrong. Um, and I, th- I think to finish on it, there's no way I can't see this triggering the Super League. I think it's the this is the the straw that broke the the Premier League's back. Um, yeah, I, I just don't see a, a way back for the league or the club. Someone's going to lose and. There's more riding on it for the Premier League than there is for Manchester City, so. Yeah. Best of luck, everyone.
3: Yeah. So uh, from that, let's uh, let's move on to the. Um, well, it, it almost seems irrelevant now, but let's turn our attention to the pitch and City's defeat at Spurs. Because if things were do we bad, to, uh, well, if things were bad off the pitch, then uh, it's it'd be sad if it wasn't so comically predictable, wouldn't it? Um, uh, Mark, where did it all go wrong? Do you think?
5: I think in the same way that it's been going wrong for several weeks now. You know, um, people will point to the lineup, obviously, and the selections that he's making. But um, I just still think that I know. I know the Harlan narrative is really obvious and really tired. But the tempo of the play and the pace of the play just isn't there at the moment. Those passes just aren't going into him. Um, it, it's weird because, like, it feels like since yes, the World Cup, but maybe since November this has been the issue, whereas before that there was everything seemed rosy, everything seemed fine. Um, but I don't know whether Guardiola just got a bit caught up in his head in the way that he does now, and, and, and he's been convinced, that, you know, there was those quotes after the World Cup that he'd seen a different way of playing that he liked and he wanted to pursue it, and we've seen, you know, obviously Cancelo fall by the wayside because of it, Foden's not, not playing regularly either. Um, those type of players that are the riskier players, the ones that you know will do things differently, just aren't getting looking right now. And the the slower, the more uh, down tempo style is winning out, but it isn't winning out because it isn't producing results on the pitch. And uh, Sunday, really for me, watching it was just an, another another symptom of this kind of slow, steady decline into nothingness that that is City's title defence at the minute um, yeah. we're all expecting for that run to come but you just can't see it and I don't know where it's coming from if, if I'm honest not to sound too pessimistic after this week but you just can't see it
3: yeah Adam it was a it was a hard watch wasn't it on Sunday they, they I thought they yeah. started pretty well but as soon as Spurs scored I thought well it, it just kind of the momentum shifted and City just never looked like getting it back
4: I thought I thought City started really well uh, really really well actually the first maybe 10 minutes thought, right, okay, we're gonna gonna properly give him a game here. There was Bernardo Silva flying around into tackles. And then I'm probably wrong, but it was about the ten minute mark and it's what Mark said. Bernardo Silva had a ball to play through to Haaland and it was it was a pass that you'd you can see and you can see it's on. Then he doesn't play the pass. Haaland makes a great run in between the fullback and the centre half he's in. He doesn't play the pass. Instead he turned around, did a full little circle on the ball and then played it out wide and I thought just something isn't clicking between anyone and I think like Mark said the Haaland narrative is tired and I think he's doing what he can he's getting in the space he's still scoring goals basically off nothing and then eventually Morris hits the bar and you think right here we go again we're never going to s- score at that stadium by the way never <laughs> <much first. laughs> um, but it just doesn't seem to be working and Pep doesn't know his best team I think Rico Lewis has been a great little flourishing part of this season, but you can't rely on him all the time and throwing him out into an inverted left back away at Spurs where we can't yeah. buy a win.
3: It's a he's, lot of pressure he's a, for him. He's a young right back playing yes. an inverted, playing a, yeah. a weird role anyway, and over on the wrong side. It's like it's it's, it's a lot to it's ask. It's not.
4: And then there's something strange going on with Laporte, who can't get in the side. We haven't seen Diaz for about a year. Um, we don't know what our best two centre-halves are at the moment. We look a little bit weak in midfield. He didn't start De Bruyne, which I thought was odd. Um, we, we know that De Bruyne can turn a game up, but it's it's all a bit strange, I think. And then it'll go on forever, but Grealish and Mahrez on the wing don't offer the most pace, and the very uh, half-attacker defender then pull themselves back out and look for Haaland. and doesn't seem to work. We're just missing... I think it was quite obvious we were missing Foden, an inf- an informed fit Phil Foden in that game, it completely changes it for me. And De Bruyne, and maybe a fullback, a functioning fullback. It just seems a bit weird. And I saw a really good piece of analysis on Twitter about Laporte, and we're missing his distribution. We forget that about Laporte. Very good defender. Sometimes yeah, possible, got mistaken though, yeah. him. Usually against Spurs, but playing the ball out from the back, him and Stones are the best at it in the league. And without either of them, we've got two centre-halves who can only pass to the full-backs. And when you've got Rico Lewis playing as some auxiliary, central, defensive midfield left-back, it's all a bit convoluted. And like Mark said, I wonder if Pep is a bit in his head. Yeah, Not in an overthinking Pep's done crazy stuff again, but I wonder if he's just a little bit not he's, sure, yeah. Of he's, he's, kind of,
3: he's, he's kind of solved one problem and like it's caused another yeah, and another exactly. and another. We've, and like yes, the dominoes yeah. are suddenly like there's a hundred yeah. dominoes on the floor, yeah.
4: Exactly, we've brought in one of the best finishers we'll, we'll ever see, but we can't get the most out of him because the way that we're trying to play up to him doesn't work. So mm. strange,
3: yeah. Mark, just on um the Spurs goal as well, um. I mean, obviously, Lewis was sold short by by Rodri for for the pass. Any concerns over Rodri the last few weeks? Because he's—I I don't know if he's looking tired or if he's just like a, kind of on a bit of a downturn of form. He's been been in great form for for like two years or so now, and you you kind of go, okay, sometimes you do have a little bit of a sticky patch, but it it, it feels a bit uncharacteristic from him at the moment.
5: Yeah, I, I see what you mean. I, I've kind of noticed it myself a little bit recently. Um, he is just not quite at his usual level at the minute. And because of the position that he has in, in in the team, because of the position that he takes in the pitch, that has huge ramifications and huge effects on, on the rest of the, on the rest of the side. I think, um, yeah, look, his mistake for the goal, like trying to play that pass and get through that area, um, it's the type of thing that maybe sometimes you'd think he would be able to pull off. But I don't know, actually, and coming back to Adam's point, I don't know if it is one that this... City team the way it's configured at the minute the way it's set up I don't know if it, that's a situation they particularly thrive in I think it's a great point about um, Aki and Akanji just not really having that same level of build-up and if you know if, if Rodri's not quite at it as well then you're not constructing your attacks in the same way as you usually do you're not yeah building up in the way that you'd want to um and that only has a multiplying effect if you like on just how slow everything else is in the team um so yeah I, I think his form is is perhaps a trigger for some of this um but i think it's part of a bigger wider picture as well yeah, uh, same wide
3: issue.
5: yeah yeah totally i think guardiola at the minute like we said we're talking about him in his head it's not the overthinking thing i hate to use that word because it just comes up all the time but it's not it's, it's almost the opposite of that you know it's not the galaxy brain stuff it's like him trying to Correct some of the galaxy brain stuff, and it's, so it's underthinking. People, like, if anything, say, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah,
3: exactly. <laughs> yeah, uh, let's bring in this from Andy Stafford on the emails. I'll come to, uh, I'll flip it round and come to Andy's second point first uh, because he says I'm baffled to how Laporte and Diaz can't get into what looks like a very shaky defence at present. The playing out from the back isn't up to the usual standard yet. The best passer of the ball from the defence after Stones in Laporte isn't playing. We're also lacking in leadership too. Yet Diaz can't get a game. We're not looking good at the back, and the strongest defence with players available screams. Walker-Dias-Laporte-Akate, but it doesn't happen. I know Pep has cited other things like attitude and body language, and I know Laporte has had his moments in this area, but I can't see Diaz being a trouble causer at all, yet he can't get into the team. Adam, it's what you were saying before. Um, uh, just on Diaz, because, I mean, we, we touched on Laporte before. Just on Diaz, is it a case of that he's been injured a lot and it's just like he's, he's slowly coming back to fitness, or would you have expected to see him by now?
4: It must be a fitness thing, because... I think Akanji's been a great signing and he was brought in as cover who started the season so well he didn't lose his place. Ake's been really, really good this season. But we know that Diaz brings something different and he brings a bit of fight. And we were talking at the weekend watching the Spurs game. The one player that City seemed to miss the most is Fernandinho. Not even for him playing. Just we, we're we on the pitch against Spurs and it's getting a bit sticky. There's, no, there's nobody you're turning to and thinking someone's going to grab this and grab the team and kind of pull it. And we hate all that. I hate when people talk about passion and, oh, he gets it and everything. But we don't really have that in the whole starting eleven at the moment. I can't point to anyone who has that. De Bruyne sometimes can have it, but Gundogan's club captain, isn't he? Yeah. And on the pitch, he doesn't really bring any sort of leadership, I don't think. So you'd think that Diaz at least has that. And we know that Diaz, when you put... When he puts together a run of form, he is certainly good enough. He was in Team of the Year, his first uh, season. He was Player of the Year in his first season. So he can't have gone off the boil that much. And the same with Laporte, like Andy said. he's He is our best distributor alongside Stones, and we miss that. And as Mark was saying, with Rodri, you do wonder... Does he need those two or one at least one of his centre-halves to be able to receive the ball under pressure and give it him under pressure for him to then be able to get out of situations? He did play a terrible pass to Rico Lewis. But at the same time, does he just not have the confidence to go anywhere else? I think that's that's probably my worry at the moment. We can't yeah. keep changing the back four. How many back fours have we played this season? How, how often have we played the same back four? For three weeks, it's just yeah. not happened. So, well,
3: like, with uh, certainly in the earlier in the season, with two available fullbacks and uh five available centre halves, I, I'm not yeah, sure what the, but the total number of possible combinations is. But I'm like they must be getting close to it.
4: Arsenal terrifies me because of this. Mm. I think I think we've got enough to beat Arsenal on a good day, but if the back five don't have a great day, and We'll save Edison for another day because that is a totally different conversation. <laughs> um, yeah. If the back five don't have a good day against Arsenal, we'll get battered.
5: Yeah.
4: With with Odegaard, Saka and Martinelli, and then any sort of other pace up front, Nketiah, Jesus, whoever it is, we'll get battered. Because a- Ake has been brilliant and Akanji's been good, but going backwards, they're not quick. So... Yeah, that doesn't doesn't fill me with confidence.
3: We'll come to that a bit later on. Uh, We'll keep keep pushing the negativity a bit further.
4: Um,
3: Andy's other point, Mark, is uh, he says, it's been bugging me for a while, but why are we back to being awful from attacking set pieces again this season? I can't recall us scoring from a ball into the box from a free kick or corner this season. I seem to remember last season we had the best record in the league from these situations and now probably the worst. We've added Erling Haaland into the mix, yet we've regressed massively in this area to a point where when we get a corner or a free kick that it's going to be delivered into the box i just never feel like we're going to score um i i went and look at the, looked at the stats for this according to who scored city have had seven set piece goals in the league this season uh, the best is spurs we tend city are sixth in the list so it's not actually as bad as it feels i just wonder how much of this is actually that set pieces are
5: not as dangerous as we perceive them to be oh that's a that's a big question <laughs> <laughs> i think i think no look i think um If you look at teams that tend to overperform their kind of level of ability, set pieces are an area of the game that you can train, that you can work on and you can get that edge that other teams don't have. And I think in the past City have had it. Um, Perhaps, look, it's a theory that I'm just kind of working off the top of my head if I'm totally honest at the minute. But I do think um, it's almost linked to what we were just talking about. Laporte certainly was such a threat on set pieces last season. Um, in terms of just getting his head on the ball. If, if he's not around, if you don't have Diaz around, you lose some of that. Um, if, if De Bruyne is not playing every single week like we expect him to, you've not got that delivery. Um, so I think there's a consistency of selection, there's a consistency of routine that is perhaps not at the same level as it has been in previous seasons. I know Pep's always rotated, I know he's always chopped and changed, but um, this this season has felt like he is doing it to a degree where we actually don't know who's going to be in the team each week apart from Edison and Harland, basically. So I, I do think that's played into it a little bit. Um Yeah, it's something that I think sixth is fine in that table, but I think it's something that the city should look to work on because in the seasons where they've, and it might not be the case this season, but in the seasons where they have been one of the better set-piece sides, they've still only just about edged it in front of Liverpool or whoever else has been chasing them. Um, often Liverpool, to be honest. But yeah, it's still just been about enough to get over the line uh, and make that difference. And so, yeah, it's something that I think probably does need to be addressed because traditionally they've been very good at it, but this season, not so much.
2: This is the Blue Moon Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Blue Moon Podcast.
3: Well, let's, uh, let's inject some positivity into this week's show. This Friday marks 15 years since Sven-Goran Eriksson took his City side to Old Trafford and won, earning the club's first victory away at United since 1974 and the first league double over their rivals in nearly 40 years. It was a momentous afternoon for City, coming on the day that Manchester commemorated the 50th anniversary of the Munich air disaster. To reflect on that win, I've been speaking to City fans Chris Higginbottom and first Richard Burns about their memories of the day.
1: I wouldn't have believed it until you just told me and you're very, very dumb diligent with the facts, so <laughs> I do presume it to be true, but it doesn't seem so long ago, does it? It's um, passed in the blink of an eye. Yeah. Uh,
3: you were there. You were, were you there for the Old Trafford uh, derby, um, because am I right in thinking this is the one you got caught swearing on TV?
1: Yes. Um, young renegade that I was, <laughs> young rebel, was, uh, I was caught flipping a rude hand gesture at the United fans um, whilst we were uh, whilst we were 2-0 up. Rather yeah, with the uh, cause, at least, very much <laughs> with the cause. Yeah, good cause.
3: <laughs> yeah, an excellent cause. Higgy, um, obviously, we're talking about this because it's the anniversary uh, this week. But um, the two games, we were either them—the the home or the away game.
0: Was it the home game, not the uh, not the one with the Death Star?
3: Yeah. So, uh, I mean, it's it's a difficult one. The home game is a difficult one to to kind of remember because um, my memory of it is basically United battered us for ninety minutes, but we scored.
0: I only really remember the goal. And it's often, It's your memory is kind of, um, well, could say clouded, could say enhanced. In- Informed by the amount of kind of footage you watched since that time. It's like, oh yeah, I remember that, do you? Or did you just watch it like eight months ago? <laughs>
7: so,
0: I mean, I kind of I feel like I remember the goal and I was there to see it, but I've seen it. I've seen it since that many times On uh, video footage, (laughs) that it's kind of like that's
3: you only remember uh, it from the camera view now, not from your view. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: exactly. It's like, whoa, where was I sat? Oh no, that's that's the camera. Yeah,
3: so the uh, the, let's talk about the game at Old Trafford then. Going into that, um, Higgy, we like said he hadn't won there in what thirty-five years, was it at that point? Long, um, long time a long time you couldn't have been confident at all could you surely
0: i had a bit of a feeling actually just because of the kind of uh resonance of the occasion and the importance that um you know united were obviously not not that they were placing the importance of the of the of the date in terms of munich um so there's always a bit of added pressure there and it's football being football. It throws up results like that, doesn't it? When, when they, you know, they really, really want to go out on a, on a a winning note and for us to just wade in and, and spoil it was uh, yeah pretty special. And I had a little inkling in my happen. I actually watched it, you know, you're saying it doesn't seem like 15 years ago. It seems at least 15 years ago to me because my life, life was like completely different. I was working in, um, as a waitress in a cocktail, but I know it was, uh, <laughs> I was actually, it was when I was gardening, but there's this, when we first started the business up, I don't do that anymore, but I just do plant-based puns on podcasts these yeah, days. Yeah, happy for that. But, uh, I had like a, a moonlight, job while we were getting a business going, working in a pub, uh, the Trevor in, in Chorlton, which mainly red book, a lot of blues and it was my day off. So I went to watch it in there and my God, it was like the wild west. <laughs> all, How do you absolutely, mean? Well, it just well everyone turned up on a horse wearing leather. No, it was just it was just a, was just a massive massive brawl in there after the game. It was absolutely hideous. Like Adizing. yeah, bar stools flying everywhere. Like oh, was, yeah, yeah.
3: Did, did whoever was on the piano, did they stop? And it just everybody kind of stood up as well, and it just yeah.
0: Yeah, <laughs> it was, you know, people-shaped holes in the windows and
3: that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Richard, obviously, a different experience for you being in the ground. Uh, how were you feeling ahead of kickoff? off
1: I, I wasn't expecting a win at all. Um, I think my default setting was always to go into, and, and with good reason, was always to go into the Derby at Old Trafford expecting defeat and being happy with the draw, because that was, like, historically, in uh, in my lifetime, the best that we could ever hope for. And especially, like, having already beaten them once that season, felt like doubles against United just didn't happen.
3: Well, they'd um, never happened so, in our lifetime, had they? So.
1: Exactly. Um, so, yeah, I had I had very little confidence. Obviously, you always have that hope and, and, um, and wouldn't it be great if, kind of thinking. But I never expected it at all. Uh, so it was just when the goals, which I'm sure we'll come to, when the goals started going in, it was like, I can't believe this is happening. Like we're we're actually winning at Old Trafford. Um, Obviously, now it's it's slightly more, uh, if not routine, it's somewhat more regular. Um, But back then, it just like that was the incomprehensible to me. That was like as almost as good as it gets. Winning at United, it was amazing.
3: Yeah, the first goal. um, I, I love it because there's there's a phrase that gets used in football sometimes where it's like a goal that defied all efforts to stop it. And Vassell's was definitely that. He had about six bites at the cherry before he managed to get it into the net. I remember Ireland slipping it through to him. And then Vandersaar certainly made one save before before it came back to him. And he, I, I think he made a second one before Vassell had a third shot that went in. Like, uh, Richard, did, did it slow down in the ground when all that was going on? Because it just seemed like he seemed to be in the six yard box forever just hacking away at this ball.
1: Yeah, of course. I mean, it's one of them where you just. you you're sort of waiting for the net to bulge. And then with each passing save, it seems like it's dragging out and dragging out or each passing block. And you sort of get to a point where you think it's never going to go in. So to see it cross the line and and the net bulge was, um, I suppose it it almost adds to the, like that the noise that you make and and the way it sort of lifts the roof off, so to speak. Yeah. Um, Just that, that, Oh, it's in. No, it's not. Oh, it's in. No, it's not. And then it finally is. It was, yeah, it was absolutely electric when that one went in, but it's definitely a time-slow-down-time moment.
3: Yeah. What, what happened in the pub, Chris? What,
0: well, when the goal went in? Yeah. Well, just like the Blues that are in there, because it was about a 50-50 split on the day, but the Blues just went absolutely mental. And um it was just a lot of, Folded arms and glaring, and the puffing out of even redder cheeks from uh, the United fans. But once that had died down, you get the usual fear in the City fans, thinking, "Oh God, this is just gonna, this is just gonna anger them, and we're just gonna get battered." Here. <clears throat> you don't really think you're gonna go on and get a second and be disappointed, at, lose at them, can you know them getting one? Yeah, i consolation later on. I'm
3: trying to think if uh, the uh, the last time City had had the lead at Old Trafford um, might have been that FA Cup tie. You know the one that, uh, well, uh, Chris, I know it. I know it still bears quite a problem it rankles, for me. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it, it, I can't think of a time since then where City had had the lead at Old. Tra- so even being in front at Old Trafford was huge. So then the second one goes in, Chris. How, what are you thinking?
0: It was just pandemon- pandemonium at that point. Uh, I mean, <laughs> did it go in off his like shoulder in the back of his head or something? It was such a scruffy, deliciously kind of well meant, but not exactly well struck uh, header off a corner on it and yeah just yeah absolutely amazing that's when we really started to believe I mean you go 2-0 up it's like yeah yeah we're gonna we're gonna do this I mean that's (laughs) not that we've not been beaten by United from being 2-0 up before in the past but it just had uh, yeah had a bit of an air of authenticity about that and um, yeah that's when the that's when the atmosphere in the pub started to get a little bit uh a little bit dangerous. <laughs> yeah. we really started uh, you know singing a bit then and uh and getting to him.
3: Yeah. Richard, the, the second one goes in then off um off Benjani's shoulder and uh, are you starting at that point, like Chris? Are you starting to get a little bit more confident here, or like g- there was something about the performance of the day? Because I, I remember Sven speaking about the the double afterwards and said that um, in the home game we were a bit lucky, but at Old Trafford we were not lucky. We deserved it, and hmm. and they they were playing well at this point as well.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you said that because that was um, that was going to be my point anyway. I think the the belief came not just with the goal, but they were they were two 0 up. And worth it. Like they, they didn't um, feel particularly threatened by United. And I think at that point, um, like I, I remember after the game, thinking how subdued the atmosphere had been. And I think a lot of that comes in with it being um, the obviously the fiftieth anniversary of um, of the Munich air disaster. Like they'd gone in with so much hype around it. Um, and you know, even like if you recall, like even down to things like the kits were changed. So like a lot, a lot of the build up had been about how to pay respect to that, and all United had to go and do was like honour it by yeah, they by just winning, had to turn like up and win
3: the game. That's that's how they. I, I wonder if that's and, how they were feeling. Yeah,
1: y- yeah, and then. City obviously at that point, obviously would had a really good start to the season, and post Christmas it had a really big downturn in form. Granted, this was only February, so maybe that wasn't um like a, a huge run of bad form, but it was noticeable. Um, and you'd think maybe heads would have been down, confidence is is low at that point, and yet there they are outplaying United and 2-0 up and deserving it. So definitely like there's still that sense of oh my god, this is actually happening. Um but a two-goal lead. say like something like really, really obvious, but it just feels so much more secure than a um, than a one-goal lead. you start like a one-goal. Twice lead as secure. Lead. I was
3: going to say you would say twice as secure. It's, <laughs>
1: It's almost <laughs> double the number of goals.
3: <laughs> yeah. yeah. Take, take a 1-0 take a lead, a 2-0 lead is at least 100% more secure.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, like you start to get into the realms of like, well, even if they have a turnaround, we're probably at least going to get a draw bar in like a, a really significant turnaround. Um and yeah, it's just they were worth it. That was the thing. They were they were worth it. I think getting it before half time, like you would always expect United to come out and have a better start to the second half and all that kind of thing, um, that they were known for and that good teams do when they're under the cosh. But a two-goal lead just just makes that so much harder. Um and it was just so so richly deserved. And the fact that it was Benjani on his debut, like writing himself straight into uh, into folklore was, it was just well, a do. And
0: Celebration, yeah,
2: yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah.
3: yeah. <laughs> we'll come back to Benjani in a minute, Richard. Uh, because first, Chris, I want to ask you about Sven, um, because the whole the whole build up to the the um, the anniversary derby itself. There was talk about, um, you, you know, that City fans would ruin the silence. There was there was a whole lot of pressure, in there it turned out City fans would actually go there and be incredibly respectful, and they would they they would the, the wood was impeccable that was used afterwards. Um, and I, I kind of wonder how much of that came from Sven as well, because Sven, as as a manager, was he was the figure, he was kind of that figure of respect and that sort of gentleman in charge of the team. And I kind of I kind of really like that the first derby double in my lifetime was his. Does that make sense?
0: Well, uh, (laughs) yeah, I think so. I mean, he had um, an elder statesman air about him. He did command respect, and perhaps the way that, uh, you know, uh, jumping up and down Kevin Keegan might not have inspired such calm. I think a lot of the um, reaction or lack of it, you know, the the good behavior from the City fans was just because we were determined not to make a show of ourselves um, as well as the, the respect element. Um, you know, part and parcel, really, the two overlap pretty heavily. But I think the fans deserve a lot of credit in the way the afternoon went as a whole in terms of the game and the result because if we had have been really disrespectful... Um, it sounds that the result, whipped... doesn't it? Yeah. yeah, well, not just that, but it would have whipped the home crowd into an absolute frenzy. So I think we really played our part. Well, I say play... Can you really say impeccable if one of our fans is caught on telly swearing? I mean, true, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's just not not very impeccable. It's disgusting behaviour, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, it's but, very uh, true. On the whole, on the whole, we were perfectly behaved. Yeah, what what are two exceptions
3: aside? Yeah, yes,
0: yes, but we won't dwell on those. <laughs> yeah. But, but yeah, I think uh, definitely Sven um, was a, a positive influence on that, and um, yeah, if only. If only could have been a, given a crack at the uh, amount of money we've got now, what would have happened then?
3: Yeah, Richard, um, I, I said we'd come back to uh, Benjani because you—you you must be one of the few. I, I can't think there'd be many occasions where a groom would reference Benjani on his wedding day. So, um, like, yeah, just explain to everyone how that came about.
1: Uh, thanks, David. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, on my wedding day, uh, so my wife is from Zimbabwe and it dawned on me that, um, that that gave me a really good opportunity to get a sort of easy city reference um, early into my speech. Um, not that my wedding necessarily needed more city in it, given that the tables were named after city players. I was going to say so the tables so were city
3: forth.
1: players, yeah. Um, yeah, and the, you know, walk down the aisle to Blue Moon and my wedding suit was a city kit and... Um,
3: <laughs> Moonchester was, did, the,
1: did the, yeah, the vows. The <laughs> Yeah. yeah, and my wife is Moonbeam. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No, um, those things aside, <laughs> uh, my wife being from Zimbabwe, my, my opening line was along the lines of, um, you know, I recall very well the day that I first fell in love with a Zimbabwean and then went on to uh, sort of detail um, celebrating Benjani's goal. And, um, and this is where you come back into it, David, because I remember I think I closed that bit with uh, something on the lines of, um, but I did find a Zimbabwean that I love more, and she's not even scored against United. And I right. remember you saying to me afterwards, David. To be fair, that says more about your wife than Benjani.
0: <laughs> I don't remember saying
3: that. <laughs> uh,
1: you did. I think. Um, I think United's defense at the time was uh, was particularly bad. They were they were managed by uh, what I would call peak era Solsha at the at the time of my wedding. So yeah, it was great. And I think I think the mention of Benjani, because uh, as you would imagine. Um, there was quite a lot of guests from Zimbabwe. And uh, I think that got <laughs> the, the biggest cheer of my speech, which did take me by surprise, but was an early settler. I'll say that.
3: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so back to the game then, Chris, because obviously we've taken a massive detour there. Um, United get one back towards the end. Uh, it is stoppage time. It's it's probably the last kick of the game, but there's enough time for it to kick off and maybe knock it around a couple of times before hoofing it long sort of thing. Were there any nerves that City were going to blow this?
0: Definitely a few nerves that were going to blow it. Me, personally, I was just worried about getting out of the pub alive. Um, so, it was kind of, I was just edging towards towards the exits. But you're always in fear of that, aren't you? Because you, you never know at Old Trafford how many minutes they're going to get added on. Because, you know, there's always that history of more time added on until they score. Yeah. And um yeah, it was just an absolute joy to, to see it out.
3: So what did it mean to you, Chris, to to get that first win at Old Trafford? That I mean, you, you've been you've been waiting to, to see this for your for your entire life. You see it then. What, what what does it mean? Where where does that derby rank then? Like still with all the all the good times that city have had at Old Trafford, where does this one still stand?
0: Oh, way up there. I mean that's that season, like from the start of the season when we bought all those players. We had a really good away performance at West Ham and it was like, wow, it's a sunny day, we've got new players, the kit's amazing, we're going to win the league and then you go on to do the double <laughs> over at United. It was heady times, was a good time to be a City fan. Yeah, Obviously it didn't last particularly yeah. uh, and then it got better again so, you know, roller coaster as always, rock yeah. and roll club.
3: Richard, leaving the ground, um, I mean, I imagine you left the ground four or five hours after full time, given the result. Um, but, but what was it like leaving, leaving there, having, having been at the game for, for City's first win there in your lifetime?
1: I mean, it was exceptional. I'm sure, um, you know, you guys certainly, and I'm sure a, a huge amount of our listeners have had the joy of leaving a, a football stadium after a big win in it. Um, you know, against a, a big rival. And it does have a certain euphoric feeling. There's the you know people tend to be singing on the way out. Everybody's happy, and it was just that times like times a million. Really, um, we were kept in for somewhere between twenty minutes and thirty minutes after, as I recall. Were you um, no, it was great watching <laughs> watching the ground um, watching the ground empty whilst we were singing, and there was the you know the, I mean the Benjani chant was spawned in in those moments. It was sang on the day. Um, whoever um, came up with that one quickly managed to get it to catch on, and that was when the the Tanoi announcement um, was about. We would like to thank you for your behaviour. You've been impeccable, which quickly became the "We are impeccable" chant. It was just euphoric. <laughs> it was, it was, it was great. Um, just one of those rare occasions that you get where absolutely everybody is in the same mood for the same reason, and it's just a great thing to share. And that's the, um, you know, it's really the beauty of what following a, a football team can do for you and you just know that you're on the same page as everyone. It was yeah. it was mad how much abs- more alive
0: you can feel, isn't it? Just after yeah,
1: like that. Yeah, just absolutely fantastic. And um, you know, I think a few very hoarse voices the the day after, um it was great. Just just great. And knowing that we deserved it as well. Like we'd been the better team, what a thing.
2: and under every manager. Just go to statscity.co.uk and browse away. That's statscity.co.uk. Email the show through our website, bluemoonpodcast.com.
3: That was Chris Higginbottom and Richard Burns remembering the uh, Munich anniversary derby in 2008. Uh, we're now going to turn our attention to the coming games with Villa and Arsenal. Um, Mark, given everything that we've talked about on the show so far and City's performances and all that sort of stuff, like what, what now? How does City approach these games to, to uh, avoid the, the, the previous problems? Is it, or, or is it just simply a case of like they just, they're just in a funk that they need to play themselves out of?
5: I think there's an element of that. I think there's no silver bullet. Um, this has been consistent for quite some time now, uh, regardless of who plays. Um, when he's played teams that played the teams that everyone wants, when he's selected the lineups everyone wants, it hasn't been that great either. So there is an element of that. At the same time, I think on the back of that performance the other night at Spurs, I would I would just make sure that De Bruyne is playing. To be honest, I know he hasn't been at his best this season, but I feel like even if he'd just been in that lineup it offers that level of ambition in passing it offers that a bit more risk taking that was that was severely lacking and um, you know he's been out the last two now uh, sorry no, I, I sorry he was out that Spurs game but yeah both Spurs games him, on that yeah. yeah yeah so I, both of the Spurs games but I'd expect him to be honest I know it's a quick turnaround but I'd expect him to be to be there for both of these this week because I think even if Kevin De Bruyne at 50% I think his influence on this team is still huge and and it's one that we are sorely missing on Sunday.
3: Yeah, just in terms of risk takers Adam, um because obviously Foden missed the the game against Spurs with illness, uh but he's he hasn't been in the team before that with, you know, the it, it it's that traditional sort of Guardiola niggles sort of um comment that he makes, but it's it feels like there's been a little bit of like times when he could have been selected and hasn't been, um is he the sort of player that you want to see back into this team like as soon as possible just to give it that little bit more risk?
4: yeah, yeah, hundred percent and I think we missed him massively in the Spurs game because as you say he offers a bit of risk, but it's always clever with it as well and he offers us pace. people forget that he's he's quick um i just I just think going into this Villa game. City really needs to put in a performance. We obviously they need to win. It's a you have to win or your season's turned into a real bust. But I think it needs a performance, and I think it needs a little bit more ambition. And I'd like to see De Bruyne in the team. I'd like to see Foden in the team. Mahrez has been great the last couple of months, and I'd say Grealish was potentially our best player against Spurs. And has been very good, especially low, in those low bigger bar, games. Though, wasn't it, against Spurs? <laughs> the bar was quite low, yeah. Um, but I just think it needs a bit of a change, it, especially going forward. It's very predictable. It's very get to the byline and kind of shuffle inside, put in some sort of cross and hope that Haaland's big enough to head it in. I think we just need a little bit of something different, and Foden offers that. De Bruyne will offer some of that. Um,
2: Alvarez? Other than
4: that, our option he wasn't very good against spurs let's be honest i don't think it worked for him um the position that he played in i think playing him deeper or playing him too wide he just doesn't offer the same uh ball it's not it's the last ball from you want him you want his final touch to be a shot not a pass yeah um so I, it just needs a bit of a freshen up i think i'd love to see foden back in with de bruyne um maybe Foden, Grealish and Haaland. We know that that worked really well at the start of the season when it happened, so that would be nice. And I do like that Pep is not taking anything from the players this year. We've seen that with Cancelo, we've seen all this body language stuff in training, but it might be time to just let the players play because we can't keep, if there is an issue with Foden, you can't keep him out of the team for too long because it's harming us. So there's going to have to be some sort of balance, I think.
3: Yeah. Given recent displays, Mark, as well, uh, I mean, Adam mentioned that that City have to win. Um, It's almost like the performance is just as important as the result now. They both have to be good, don't they?
5: I think so, and that's such a strange place for City to be in now because the performance has always been a given. It's always been a guarantee, hasn't it? Um, But I think it's got to the point over the last few months where you're just desperate to see uh, some kind of like glimmer of the city that we knew or the city that was at least post uh, pre the world cup um so yeah i'd take that i think um guardiola will often you know say that it is about the performance anyway and you know even if there is a poor result he'll um, he'll come out and defend defender performance but i don't know he hasn't he hasn't done that so much recently and i think that's telling within itself so he's probably looking for it as well i would say and um yeah like this this funk whatever you want to call it I I, kind of think that (laughs) until he gets that moment of clarity, that he sometimes we've seen it before, you know, where he's had he's latched onto something in the middle of a season, like, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, there was that one just or like after the Leicester game in in 2021, yeah, this that's at the start of that season where he just he just figures out, okay, this is how this is our problem right now, this is how I fix it, um. You know, I think all of us were still back in one hundred percent to be able to do that because he's been able to come up with answers to just about every single problem that, that has been presented to him over the last five years, uh, six years. But um, but this feels like now, not <laughs> not not to sound too doom mongering and stuff, but it it does feel like one of the bigger ch- tests and the bigger challenges he's got because he he is trying to implement something I think that he hasn't necessarily done properly before. Um, some of that is linked to Harlan. Some of that is linked to this new idea between control and risk taking, whatever control chaos, etc. This is a new problem for him and. Um he's only going to he's only gonna land on a solution when he sees the performance that he likes. And I, I still think he's waiting to do that.
3: Yeah, let's bring in this from Cole on Twitter, Adam, who says, uh, is the answer for the season to get Ake or Laporte to hold position and form a back three in possession of the ball and get Walker to bomb on beyond Mares for some width? It might limit Rico Lewis's opportunities, but that might be the best way to get City some control and to stretch the pitch. Or is the solution getting Alvarez into the team alongside Haaland with Lewis tucking into midfield?
4: Maybe um, it goes back to Mark's point about Galaxy Brain Pep. Do we really want to start going back three at this point and really shuffling the deck? I'm not sure, but I think there's a good point in there about Rico Lewis and he's had the he's had more opportunity than I imagine he ever thought he was going to have at his age and at his stage of his career. We can't now get really sentimental about this really brilliant, bright young kid. This is a time for if he doesn't play for six weeks, he doesn't play for six weeks. We just yeah. need results. Um if he doesn't if he no longer fits into that mould because Walker's back and he's fit, Walker plays, and I just don't want us I thought playing him at left back last week was really risky. Um, not just for the game but for him. Because that's gonna knock his confidence somewhat, isn't it? He he wasn't great, he was difficult, um to get on the ball. He was trying to play that really strange position that's going to be unusual to him. So, if he has to be out of the team for a while and we just get to a back four that works, then fine. Um, I agree with Laporte, though. I'd, I'd love to see Laporte get some time, especially with Stones out. We need somebody who can pass. Yeah. And pass forward. Um, yeah, it's, it's really tricky. I just, I think a back three, whether on or off the ball, fine. Pep can do what he wants, but Let's just try and win a game of football, please. That'd be great.
3: <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, we'll get to that in a second with the charity bet predictions. But first, let's get some insight into how Aston Villa are doing at the moment. I've been speaking to Frankie Maguire from the All Villa, No Filler podcast. I started by asking, what's changed for them under Unite Emery?
7: It's fair to say that I think over the 12 months that we had Steve and Gerard, uh, if I could have Will Smith from Men in Black turn up with that device and wipe my memory <laughs> of 12 months of, you know, I there was being patient last season with Jared because he came in in November. Um, and you're sort of thinking there's going to be a style of football that maybe he's working towards. You know, he made it work at Rangers. So you're patient and you think maybe he'll get his own players in the summer. And then the first day of the season when we played Bournemouth away and lost 2-0, um, it was absolutely shocking. Like, I, w- I was so shocked at what I witnessed where... And then I went to another Villa game shortly after that and watched it live. And Villa just, to me, looked like a team that were... Clueless. There was no plan. Um, the defenders would pass it back and forth each other over and over again, and then there was no outball at all. Um, Villa just looked like a team that were going nowhere very, very fast. And um, Unai Emery coming in has been a- an immediate change because every single game under Gerard felt like I don't think there's a plan here, and I think he's just shouting at everyone at half time, hoping to get a reaction. Whereas with Unai Emery, it feels like in the game he makes changes that. Work. He approaches games where it looks like he studied the opposition and figured out ways we can hurt them. Uh, and he's worked out a way uh, to sort of mould our squad into a new formation, uh, a kind of hybrid four-four-two that uh, is. It has has worked really well, um, particularly away from home. Uh, at home, we look a little bit vulnerable at the moment. Uh, we we like we lost to Leicester four two, lost to Liverpool three one, um, and uh, in both those games it was where Villa played a high line, and then we'd make one mistake, and both of those teams just hit us on the counter and had like a had a, had a million chances. So I'm I'm not sure he'll play a high line against City because you're just asking for trouble really doing that. I think, um, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if he sort of takes the game to City. And I think our away games under Emery have been. More impressive than our home games. Um, beat Spurs 2 0 away, uh, beat Southampton 1 0 away, and beat Brighton 2 1 away as well. So they're the three home away games we've had under Emory. And in all of them, it felt like Villa were tactically smart and our midfield worked very well. So I'm very, you know, City will be the highest standard team we've played uh, under Emory. And uh, I'm very intrigued to see how we do.
3: Yeah, I mean it it's interesting kind of just hearing I can hear in your voice just kind of how things have <laughs> uh, have picked up this season under Emery. Um yeah. like, what's he doing differently? What like tactically what is it that that he's got other than kind of like you say a plan? Um I yeah. see like you said he's reshaped the team a little bit.
7: Yes, so under Gerard Villa essentially played with no wingers. We were very very narrow and I called it narrow nothingness. So he was kind of expecting that our fullbacks would just bomb on and be those wide players. And uh, to be honest, against City Away last year when Matty Cash scored the first goal of the game with a cross from Luca Dean, that was probably an example of that actually working. But it, it worked very rarely, primarily because those two players just aren't really good enough to get back and forth all the time and beat their beat their men, particularly Cash, I would say. Um but, uh, but since, since Emery came in, that sort of, sort of narrow nothingness has gone away, and now we play with width. Um, and we, he's starting players who are more creative. So Emi Buendia, for instance, probably our most creative player, didn't start a single game uh, at home uh, under Gerard this season. Um, and bearing in mind that that was until late October, uh, that's an incredible statistic, really, particularly for any Villa fan who, who was watching Buendia play. Um and then also, it feels like uh, he's kind of placed Jacob Ramsey into a position that's sort of between the middle three, between between the middle four and the front two. So it's becoming, it's almost like a hybrid, like four, three, one, two, but he's sort of he's kind of playing out wide and when he gets the ball he'll then sprint at the opposition defense and it it sort of causes a bit of panic and then Leon Bailey and Ollie Watkins sort of move around to give him a bit of room. So um, yeah I th- I think Villa um, we're basically playing with a bit more width now uh, and we're more confident of playing it out from the back. Um, we, it cost us against Leicester we made a mistake and we will make more mistakes this season as we get used to playing it out from the back but uh, we're much more patient in our build-up and we're less prone to just belting it forward and losing it immediately um, though I wouldn't be surprised if there are a few long balls against City forward to Ollie Watkins where they hope he can maybe hassle your defenders and get in behind
3: yeah, of course. I mean, there was the incident as well on the last day of the season last season, where uh, Ollie Watkins got in and was—I mean, he was flagged yep. offside in the end, but he—he he was in his own half, and it would have counted had it had it found the net. So the that 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 ball of the top might be on as well. Sometimes, mm-hmm. um, just looking—I mean, just looking at the league table as well. I like because when when we met the first time this season and, and we had the one-all draw at Villa Park. Um, mm-hmm. I remember thinking that in the run-up to that Villa's form suggested that they might have been in trouble and I thought you played very well at Villa Park but um, and it was one of those games where I thought City should have done more to to kind of affect the game and didn't but I I remember I remember kind of going into the game thinking Villa are in trouble this season and now you look at the league table very looks very very comfortable now so like what's the mood in the fans like?
7: Yeah, well, we're firmly ensconced in the race for tenth place at the moment, which is a, <laughs> which is a dreamland for Villa fans uh, from the last sort of decade and a bit, uh, where we've been, you know, always lower half, fighting relegation or in the championship. So I think, yeah, I think the mood has definitely shifted a lot. Um, there's a lot. There's a lot more positivity, and I think people showing patience for Unai Emery in the sense that we accept that, you know. He hasn't really been able to build his own squad yet, and I'm expecting this summer he probably will go big for a few players. Uh, we were linked heavily to Matic Gwendouzi, and I think that's one to probably keep an eye on this summer. Um, and there's just yeah, just a, a general sense of um, liberation, I think, from the Gerrard era, uh, where I think you're right. You know, When we played City last time, I think it was in September, uh, and uh, leading up to that, I... have Already that se- that in that part of the season, I thought we are in the relegation fight this year. Like, we, if if we stick with Gerard for 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 a long time this season, it's gonna you know it's gonna take a while for a new manager to turn this around because we just we just looked bad, um, and uh, with the lack of width, meant our, our options were so limited. So it's actually kind of miraculous that Unai Emery is able to play with any kind of width, considering we don't really have dedicated wide players. Um, so yeah, I, I, something, something I'd be intrigued to see as well is we signed Alex Moreno from Real Betis, uh, over January. Who's a, a, a sort of a left back, but he's also somebody who can play in left midfield. Um, and if Luca Dean starts in left, uh, left back, I'm interested to see if Alex Moreno starts, uh, in left midfield because Emery previously at Villarreal liked to play with two left backs on one side of the pitch. Um, and so I'd be interested to see kind of how Villa get on down that side if we do go with that. Um, because I know you've said before that um, your full-backs this season aren't quite your uh, your strong area.
3: Yeah, I was going mean, I to say two left-backs. That's just exuberant, isn't it? Yeah, it's yeah. you haven't got a single left-back at the club. <laughs>
7: <laughs> yeah. So, so, yeah, that's that's kind of... I'm um, I mean, interested to see uh, whether we go... Down that route, Um, but yeah, it's just uh, honestly, it's just I can hear it in my own voice. Just the 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 deliberation and the feeling of positivity we have around Unai Emery, because you know you look at teams like Liverpool and United and City, and at some point you've had managers who just have an aura, you know, managers who just have something a bit different that enables your clubs to reach the very highest level. And I think Villa have the ingredients to get there. It's just that in the last sort of thirty years. We've never really had that manager who has that aura and that kind of, you know, that just something about them where you feel like they're different. And uh, Unai Emery, you know, winning four Europa Leagues, doing very well via Real last year in the Champions League, regularly finishing top four in Spain and France, and all the and with various teams, um, you know, to have him at Villa really feels like quite a um, quite a special moment. And maybe we finally landed upon a manager who maybe does have an aura and maybe can help Villa finally pushed towards, you know, not just the top half this season, but eventually into Europe.
3: Yeah. Um, who are the players that are in form for you right now? Because I've just been looking through your recent goal score. But when I do this, I always look at recent goal scorers. And you're getting goals yeah. from all over the team right now, aren't you?
7: Yeah, we are. Yeah. Um, I-, I think I'd have to say, to be honest, Oli Watkins has been in real form. Um, I'd I'd kind of... I'd, I wasn't tell, I'd lost faith in him, but I was starting to wonder whether he'd maybe hit his ceiling at Villa. Um, but kind of in the last sort of four or five games he's come alive and he's been involved with most of our goals through his movement um through just hassling the opposition defense and then obviously scoring I think the one thing you hold against Watkins is you just can't trust him to always get get take the easy chances uh, and I think that maybe is what would hold him back from you know playing at a Champions League club for instance because he has a, a lot of really great attributes um it's just that he's a, he's just a bit inconsistent with his first touch and his finishing um which is quite frustrating because he's so good in so many other ways um but he's probably one of our more informed players then i'd have to say Bubakar kamara in centre midfield he's an absolutely sensational player um the fact we got him for free that's where we do have to praise Stephen gerrard because it was him who really put the work in alongside our sporting director and um CEO to get him in and I I just can't believe you know 23 years of age a French international that there wasn't a Champions League club out there who saw this guy and thought that he could bring something to their team because you know there's a long tradition of Manchester City and United taking a lot of Villa's best players over the years and uh, if I look at Boubacar Kamara I think well um, maybe I should be telling you he's absolutely useless and rubbish (laughs) (laughs) but he's he's a really impressive player yeah
3: yeah. Well Frankie, we've got the charity back coming up a bit later on. Um let's have a score prediction from you for this game uh, because I'm I'm so bad at it that I uh, I there's no point in me doing it anymore. So i like to give it to the guests.
7: Yeah, normally I go uh, 6-0 City when it comes to City v Villa. We've had we've taken a few massive beatings off you over the years. Um but you know, you are a bit more inconsistent this year. Uh, I watched you against Tottenham uh, and yeah, I'm not I'm not quite getting the kind of vibe that you're going to go on one of your sort of you know your typical 10 11 game winning streaks at the moment yeah, me neither um, yeah so I, I i sort of have to think um i think you'll win i think you'll win 3-1 uh, is the, is the score i'll go with but i i wouldn't you know villa away from hoping doing well and i'm quite intrigued to see if we if unai emery can you know, conjure some sort of tactical master plan that might actually cause City far more problems than I'm envisioning right now. But I think if if I was to be, you know, brutally honest and uh, not just a Villa fan about it all, I think probably City will take it 3-1 and Jack Grealish scores one of the goals, annoyingly.
2: You're listening to the Blue Moon Podcast. You've made it this far, so don't give up now.
3: That was Frankie Maguire speaking to me about Aston Villa's current form. Um, the total on the charity bet so far this season is still £535. So all helping the Man City fans Food Bank support group who are collecting for Manchester Central Food Bank to support people living in poverty. Uh, they'll be outside the Etihad again on Sunday under the bridge near Asda so go and see them with a donation if you can. They'll be there between 2 o'clock and 4 o'clock ahead of the game. William Hill is giving each of us a £10 correct score single on City's games and we've got two games to come. So uh, we'll start with uh, Villa at home, we heard from Frankie that he's gone for a three-one City win. That is eleven to one and one hundred and ten pounds. If he's right, Mark, what are you having for this one?
5: I've gone three 0 which doesn't seem totally aligned with my general air of pessimism on this and, and, every, <laughs> and everything that we've
3: just got on for the last kind of hour or so. Yeah,
5: and I think Miller have, have, have kind of improved under Emery to a degree that, the, but the, you saw last week with the Leicester result, they still got those performances in them where they can just ship a few at once, and they're still in that phase. So, look, I think there'll be a reaction. I think Pep will switch things up after the performance on Sunday. And um, I imagine that will lead to an improved performance. Yeah, so 3-0 for me. 3-0 is 13-2 uh, to 2 and
3: 65 quid, if you're right. Adam?
5: Uh, I'm going to go for a
4: disgusting 2-1 win.
3: One of those horrid... Like a, re- yeah. A, a ter- really yeah.
4: horrible game.
3: yeah. Uh, I I look forward to enjoying that on Sunday then. Uh, (laughs) Nine to one, if you're right, 90 quid. Um, That brings us to uh, possibly the hardest game to predict this season, given the current form for City, but it's Arsenal away. Um, Adam, what are you having?
4: Um, I'm going to go very optimistic and go for a 1-1 draw. And that doesn't sound too optimistic, but I... Don't have a very good feeling
5: about it. So <laughs> well, given, given what you were 1-1 saying 1-1 before, now. it's
3: one of those I'll take it if I can get it. Yeah. Uh, six yeah. to one, if you're right. 60 quid. Uh, Mark, God. where are you going with this?
5: I've gone 2 1 to Arsenal, so dragging myself back down to earth after the dizzy heights of the 3 0 against Villa. But I think <laughs> they're, just, they're just a better team. They're good, me. aren't they? Yeah. Yeah, mm. that's it. I know, they were, I know it was a bad result last weekend for them, but they, they're just a team in a way that City really aren't whether it's consistency, of selection whatever, they're, they're a team and I, I think they'll be totally ready for this and, and yeah I can see them sneaking away yeah,
3: 2-1 uh, Arsenal is 10 to one and £100. Pounds. Uh, if it's any consolation, Mark, I originally had 2-1 to Arsenal as my uh, my prediction for this um, one. And uh, when you said it, I was like, all right, I'll let I'll let Mark take the doom and gloom angle. And then I thought about it a bit more and went, actually, that's how I'm feeling. So I've gone for 3-1 for Arsenal. <laughs> um, that's 25-1 uh, to one, if I'm right. And uh, 250 quid added to the kitty. At least if it is 3-1 to Arsenal, add some money to the kitty. Uh, remember, you've got to be 18 or over to gamble. Prices can change. And for more on gambling responsibly, take a look at begambleaware.org. And that brings us to the end of this week's Blue Moon Podcast. Thank you very much for listening and thanks to my guests for this one. Adam Keyworth.
4: Thank you very much.
3: And Mark Richley. Cheers, boys. I'll be back next week where who knows what on earth will have happened, on or off the pitch, so tune in then to find out. See you then. That
2: was the Blue Moon Podcast. Please give the show a rating and a review where you can. And don't forget, you can listen without the ads by signing up to our Patreon. You'll also get an extra episode each Monday. Here's a clip of this week's.
8: I went to university in Brighton. That was my last weekend there. And it was just an amazing way to cap off what I've been you know, not only an amazing season for City, but what have been an amazing three years for me personally. This knack of, you know, letting the other team into the game before going on and winning it on the final day of a title race. It's got to stop because my heart just can't take of it.
3: <laughs> this would have been uh, a Sunday afternoon. Uh, talk me through the Sunday evening then. What happened? I mean, as you can probably imagine, I don't remember much of it. Um, <laughs> I thought that might be your answer.
8: Yeah. A city fan group—I can't remember which one it was—they'd hired out a bar in Brighton. I think I got home about five a.m. the next day. Good. <laughs> and I'd had a good night, and then I had to go straight into university the next morning. Um, oh, how,
3: how was that? I mean, what, 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 was the, what was the lecture? Was it? It wasn't an exam or anything, was it? Please no, tell me. It, please it tell was, me you'd not, you'd not ruined your finals by.
8: Absolutely uh... not. It was. A, it was a, one of my. Fi- I think it was one of my last one or two seminars. My voice was gone. I had literally no voice. I was just creaking. So I just sat in the back, sunglasses on, hat over my head just to make sure no one looked at me and just tried to just like not be noticed at all.
2: You can listen to more of that at patreon.com forward slash blue moon podcast and join us again next time for another episode.